LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And also Brad Hambrick. And we are talking about a very, very important and timely issue. No uh, joke. Today. No joke. Um, uh, becoming a church that cares well for the abused should be something that we all strive for in each and every church, regardless of uh, denominational background. But Brad is the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham. And then also, uh, he has been uh, leading a group of people, interdenominational uh, group of people for coming together around this particular issue. Uh, They have recently launched churchcares.com. And what that is, is training so that churches and their people can really become a church that cares well for those that have been abused, but most importantly, prevent that abuse from ever happening in the first place as well. So we wanted to interview Brad today because he's been leading the project and convening and collaborating with all the speakers to to get this done in partnership with us. And so we just really wanted to talk five questions or ask five questions to Brad hey, about this topic. I do want to give uh, a, a, a quick um, just notice uh, that this project was pulled together by the Southern Baptist Convention in partnership with the uh, ERLC, but this very specifically from the very beginning has been all about being a tool that any denomination can use. The, the panel, the speakers are interdenominational as well as professionals in their field, everything from uh, a detective to uh, there's, I just want you to understand that this wasn't just something that someone threw together uh, as a result of an article or as a result of something being uh, hot button in the news right now. This has been a very detailed and thorough response. So I would really encourage you um, before this is over even, uh, take a look at churchcares.com. But before that, we do want to get into our interview. All right, Brad. Well, thanks for being on the podcast with us. Uh, It's my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Fantastic. Let's start with the first question, which is how is the church's response to abuse ultimately rooted in the gospel? Yeah, I think that's a a really important question and one that uh, if we're sloppy with, uh, it can be a distraction uh, on both sides of the conversation, uh, on the church side and the culture side. Uh, Because if we're sloppy and just say, uh, hey, we all need Jesus. And so that means every issue is a gospel issue because if it involves people and we all need Jesus, then uh, in some way or another, that makes it around the gospel. Um, You know, we've taken something that is very important and uh, maybe inadvertently turned it into a nothing statement. Uh, I think what we want to recognize there is that everything that God wants to do in and through us, uh, he does through the gospel. And so uh, a couple of angles uh, that I think are worth considering here is um, the gospel is both uh, God's message of forgiveness for sin uh, and how he ultimately brings comfort for suffering uh, in a broken world. And so uh, when it comes to 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Those great big questions of life, uh, when you're going through hard time and your world has been rocked through the trauma uh, of abuse, uh, and you're wondering, can anybody understand, can anybody sympathize, has, um, you know, what does God do with evil of this magnitude when uh, it's not just the depravity of my heart, it is the evilness of the world uh, crashing in on me from the outside, Uh, then our ability to understand how the gospel speaks to suffering uh, and responds to those who have been hurt of no fault of their own. Um, If we are going to effectively bring uh, a message of hope from Christ for what the people in the world around us are going through, uh, we are going to have to be able to talk about the implications uh, of the gospel for suffering. Um, It... Uh, I think another facet uh, of that conversation about uh, how this church's response to abuse is is rooted in the gospel is uh, there is a world looking and they want to know, um, you know, are we just hypocrites? Are we about uh, power and our reputation? Do we really care about uh, people? And if we don't respond uh, with integrity and compassion, Uh, to the matter of abuse, not just when it is church members who are abused by those outside of the church, but when it happens uh, by those in leadership in the church. Uh, If we don't deal with integrity on those matters, then any opportunity to have the standing to talk about things of ultimate hope that require integrity, uh, the church will have lost that, uh, and it will radically undermine um, the right to be heard uh, in our culture. That's so good, Brad. And when you think about the the way that the question was worded, it was the church's response. It's not something that any church leader wants to happen or ever want, ever thinks about, hey, you know, I'm going to have to deal with this one day. Yet with what's happening in our culture, I think if by, by not having a plan, you're susceptible to uh, maybe handling it without, with, with a lack of integrity and, you know, addressing in, in line with what you were talking about, Brad. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I've heard it said by several speakers who deal in the area of abuse and trauma, all evil ask of us is to do nothing. Uh, there is nothing more than to hear no evil, see no evil, speak of no evil, um, that uh, if we do nothing, And then what happens in darkness advances uh, and the most vulnerable are those who pay the price and those who aren't in a position uh, at that moment to be taken advantage of. uh, They uh, they protect their comfort. Um, And so uh, we we must engage the uncomfortable conversation. Uh, We must speak of the things that it would be in many ways easier just not to talk about. Uh, but that should have never been an option. Uh, and as we look at it, it can no longer be an option. I think that's, uh, I think that's so good. I mean, you know, the, that first question about response, um, what you've really set up there is how do we respond properly in something that's rooted in the gospel? And that is ultimately in the prevention So why are both preventative training and response planning necessary for churches when it comes to abuse? Yeah, the the preventative training is the side that we tend to start on. 
um, for for logical reasons. I mean, it we would love to be able to prevent abuse from ever happening. Um, but I think in this conversation, I'd rather start on the side of having a response plan um, because I think that has radical implications for preventative training. Uh, and so um, it would be my contention that every church needs to have a clearly defined plan uh, for how they would respond um, if uh, a instance of abuse were to come up uh, in their church. And that, um, you know, at one level, churches already have people in their congregation that are used to responding to abuse. Uh, most every church has a school teacher, a nurse, a social worker, a police officer. Uh, they have people in their congregation that this is part of their vocational responsibilities. So why not catalyze and empower uh, those individuals to say, as soon as something like this comes up, uh, we're going to make sure that those uh, who would lose their job and livelihood if this was not handled well are going to run point for our church to make sure this family, this child gets all of the care they need, all of the legal responsibilities are met, and they can let us at the time when it's legally appropriate know the things we need to know to do good pastoral care. Um, if you take the steps to set that up, and then when you are onboarding, this comes into preventative care, uh, what we have to recognize, nobody accidentally abuses a child. As uncomfortable as that is to say, abusing a child is a predatory action. Yet it is something that forethought goes into that the opportunity is sought out. Uh, in the same way that a deer hunter sets out salt blocks uh, and they a, a predator takes steps to look for easy targets. And for too long, churches have been easy targets. Uh, for the very reason that we have a strong volunteer need. Uh, and so if you put in a strong response policy and as part of onboarding um, your volunteers, uh, you don't have to be angry and heavy handed about it. But if you say we have a plan and these are the people in charge and this is the background uh, that they come from. And if we get uh, any reasonable suspicion that something's going on, any initial report, these are the people that are running point on that. Uh, for the for the predator that is looking for an easy target. Early in the process, you've just said that's not us. We are not ignorant. We are not blind. Uh, we are not naive. We have been proactive. Um, and again, it, it doesn't have to be in a harsh tone. It can be in a very positive, proactive. This is what we've done. And for those who have uh, good intentions, which is the vast majority of people who volunteer in a church, they're going to feel protected. They're going to respect their church staff for saying, I'm glad we've got a plan for that. For those who have bad intentions, they're going to think there's easier targets somewhere else. Uh, now, in terms of other preventative strategies, another piece that I think really has to be emphasized here, background checks are a first step. They are not an adequate step. Yeah. A background check, by definition, only works after the first child has been harmed. Nothing's going to show up on a background check until at least two things have happened. A child has been harmed. 
and the adults in that child's life has responded appropriately to that child being harmed. So until a child gets harmed, there's nothing to be on a background report. And until the adults around that child have the courage to make the reports that need to be made, nothing's going to show up on that background check. So background checks are a first step. They are not an adequate step that we can look at and say, we've done that, we've done everything we need to do. So Brad, you talked about that illustration of a deer hunter and the salt blocks and man, what a powerful illustration. Um, So what are some of those salt blocks that uh, abusers tend to put out in in churches? Do Do you have a list or is there something that's pretty common? Uh, The category that that kind of behavior would fall under um, is grooming behavior. Uh, The really really disturbing thing about grooming behavior uh, is that often it's just being nice. Uh, And that's another thing that we have to understand uh, about predators uh, is they're not as creepy as we want them to be. Uh, we would think that we could spot somebody who had ill intentions um, with children because of uh, how they dressed and how they talked and how they kept their hair. Um, yet that's just not true. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the grooming behavior uh, has to do with being really, really nice. Uh, and um, the kinds of things that move towards private access to children Uh, and that uh, because uh, the vast majority of abuse is going to happen when um, when there is a transition from being in a public setting uh, to having a degree of private access to the children Uh, that can be restrooms that can be inviting for one-on-one activities Uh, and that's where at the preventative side uh, the things that a church does in ministry um, with children need to be things that uh, there's always more than one adult present. Uh, and we don't have uh, adults alone with children uh, who aren't um, their, uh, their children, either by uh, birth or adoption. Yeah, that, that grooming behavior, that, I mean, you know, to just go off of that, I think would... Um, I, I don't want it to cause paranoia amongst our listeners. So, I mean, is there, I mean, what, what further advice would you then give? Because I love the, definitely we need the response plan and the preventative training is the, uh, the background check is not the first step. It, well, it is a first step, but it's not the adequate step. Is there anything else that you would then recommend our listeners to uh, watch out for? In terms of background check not being the uh, the satisfactory element, uh, in many ways, I mean, think about um, enlisting a volunteer, uh, like hiring a babysitter for one of your children. Um, it oftentimes what we do uh, for volunteers in our children's ministry uh, would not be satisfying to us if we were uh, hiring a babysitter uh, for one of our own children to be in our home. Uh, and so... Uh, having a time period in which uh, somebody is known in our church uh, that, uh, you know, is there a six month, 12 month time period where uh, you need to be actively involved in the church before you can volunteer with children or student ministry? 
uh, calling references uh, and just asking uh, what ministries they were involved in, whether there was uh, any complaints there. I mean, we would we would want to know that about a babysitter uh, for our own children. Uh, the those kinds of time buffers um, that those are the kinds of things that again they communicate that. Uh, we we are being intentional. We're not an easy, soft target. Uh, arranging rooms well. Uh, that uh, if you have if you have the capacity as a church, uh, just to have that one extra volunteer that during student ministry activities uh, that walks up and down the hallways, that checks in classrooms, that finds out, uh, you know, do the teachers need anything so that there's always that extra set of eyes, that you've got a good set of policies, that there's always two adults in the room and how you make sure during transitions that adults aren't alone with kids, uh, that when you eliminate that opportunity for privacy, then uh, a lot of that paranoia that would emerge about niceness uh, can begin to dissipate. Uh, because at that point, we have removed the context uh, where uh, abuse would be most probable to occur. And it frees us up to be nice in the way that we really want to be uh, to uh, show kids the love of Christ and to be uh, this loving family that isn't uh, inhibited or awkward because we're worried about accusation. We've created a context where that freedom can be good. That's helpful. Thank you for that. So let's move on to what are some of the best examples and practical ways you've seen churches minister to those who have become victims of abuse? I think the most, the most practical and powerful thing uh, that a church can do is listen. That uh, when, somebody, when somebody comes forward and they have the courage uh, to say, this is what's happened to me. It, it is very easy, um, especially with everything that um, is just in our social awareness right now, uh, to immediately begin to think, what do I need to do? And this begins to feel like a situation to be managed uh, as opposed to a person to be heard. It, um, and so that's where having a good response plan uh, that. If, if as a ministry leader, you know, okay, in terms of everything that needs to happen, that, that I may not know everything that needs to happen, but the, the, the next part of this is going to be getting them with somebody who does. When I can, um, when I know that, it frees me up to just hear their story, to listen with empathy, uh, to believe what they're telling me. Um, to ask the question, what can we do that would be most helpful? Uh, because the survivor that you talk to, they may be three weeks away from their experience of abuse. They may be three years or 13 years away. And so to say, uh, ah, here is what you do for any given survivor when they share their story, uh, the reference point to where that abuse occurred, when it occurred, um, whether the, uh, I mean, sometimes people are going to come forward in this environment and just say, hey, I, this happened to me. I've never talked about it, um, but it was my grandfather and they passed away uh, a number of years ago. And that's different from 
uh, this was uh, my Sunday school teacher and it happened a matter of months ago. Uh, and so first and most powerful thing is to listen, uh, to believe them, uh, connect them with an experienced resource that knows how to provide good care. Uh, again, that's where um, taking the opportunity uh, as a church, get to know social workers in your community. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make as churches is we wait until a crisis to get to know social workers or a trauma counselor, uh, somebody from um, Child Protective Services, because if we wait until a crisis happens, until we're forging relationships with those folks, uh, the crisis changes the relationship. Uh, the opportunity to get to know each other and to show yourself to be a, a church of goodwill who wants to handle these things correctly, yet that relationship building opportunity fades to the background because at that point, it is the well-being of that individual uh, who is the survivor of abuse that's at the forefront. When, uh, when right now there's not a crisis in your church, uh, you call down to Child Protective Services and just say, hey, uh, we want to make sure that as a church, we've thought this through well. Would you come to a Q&A with our church staff? Um, they're going to be grateful. They get to know you as a church who wants to handle these things well. Uh, then at that point, when you make a, within a second call and you say, hey, I've got somebody here with me. Uh, they've shared some very uh, vulnerable and courageous things. Uh, do you mind walking with us together? Uh, what needs to happen next? Uh, because being a good pastor doesn't mean you know the answer of everything that ought to happen in the middle of uh, every crisis. Uh, in some ways, being a good pastor just means you've got the courage to ask the questions to the right people in that moment. Um, and you have the humility uh, to be taught in the things that we often don't know and guided through that process, but we will be a good faithful shepherd as we bring other people onto this care team uh, to help us walk with this person well. That's helpful. That's helpful. All right. Uh, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Is marriage ministry stressing you out? Woo Marriage is here to help. This brand new tool from Lifeway provides Christ-centered marriage coaching for every couple in your church. Backed by research and design with your church in mind, Woo Marriage provides a plan for your marriage ministry with video courses for all seasons of marriage. The courses on communication, managing finances, handling conflict, and even more. So be sure to check out woomarriage.com for all of that. And you can actually get a free month if you use the offer code leadership. Just go to woomarriage.com slash free trial and use the offer code leadership. Now back to the podcast. So Brad, um, we're going to take a little bit of a shift in this next question. We've been talking a lot about the church and uh, the abused and those who are, um, how to kind of prevent and put a plan in place and all that. But what, what if you have an abuser in your congregation and instead of seeing them as a predator, uh, you want to provide pastoral care to them? What does that look like? How do you provide pastoral care to an abuser in your congregation? Yeah. And as churches, um, this is one where uh, a counselor in a therapeutic setting, uh, they have greater discretion on who they accept as a client. Uh, 
uh, into a, a counselor in a private practice setting, uh, if they're working with a victim, uh, then they would say, ah, this is a, a conflict of dual relationship for me to also work with the abuser uh, in this situation. As pastors, uh, we, we don't get that same um, opportunity that we care for everybody. Mm. Uh, and so a, a pastor in a con- I thought you were going to tell us that we could yeah. do the same thing. Uh, you know, as a, as a pastor in a congregation, uh, that uh, if you have abuse that happened within a family, uh, you are the pastor to the child who was abused, uh, to the um, parent or uncle that may have done the abusing, the spouse, the siblings, uh, the members of that same uh, Sunday school class or small group. Uh, the scope of care is greater. Uh, now, the the most loving thing that can be done uh, towards an abuser is to remove any opportunity for future abuse. So the most loving thing that you can do uh, for an alcoholic is remove access to alcohol. Uh, and, and so uh, sometimes we, we confuse forgiveness with permissiveness. And the recidivism rate uh, when it comes to uh, the pedophilia of sexually abusing minors is high. Uh, and so uh, the in caring for an abuser, um, that, again, having a plan in advance uh, that says if somebody falls under registered sex offender status, uh, that they have uh, abused a minor, that... Uh, there are limitations that come upon that person uh, that at one level are punitive, uh, but at another level are wisdom and loving. Uh, and so, again, most important thing we can do is remove access to do future harm. Uh, and so uh, that uh, never having access to uh, anything related to student ministry, definitely not uh, volunteering. Uh, but not even access to those areas of the church building, uh, recommending that uh, when they are at church, uh, that we've assigned a shepherding individual uh, that is with them wherever they go, um, that uh, that is both a accountability to them, that uh, this is a way that we care for the peace of mind uh, of families in our church, that when uh, the the parents of other children in this church are asking, what are you going to do to make sure my child is safe? Uh, we have a, uh, a shepherding individual that goes with them that they check in with when they uh, arrive at church, that they check out with when they leave, that we, uh, we have said that for you to be here without someone with you uh, would be a violation of our pastoral expectation of you. Uh, so that is peace of mind for families. Uh, it's also a protection for that individual. That uh, that way, uh, if any concern comes up and you have uh, a parent that if there's if they just check the registered sex offender uh, registry and they see someone uh, walking uh, out of the. Uh, restrooms that are closest to the sanctuary and their child was in that restroom and a phone call gets made. Uh, here's somebody who is a registered sex offender that was in the restroom with my child. Um, if as a church, uh, we can't say that we 
have somebody with them and that there were, um, you know, somebody who can vouch that this is our policy, this is how it happens. And as they go uh, through anything they do uh, here at the church, there are eyes and ears present. Uh, in that moment, uh, having that shepherding person with them uh, is a protection to the abuser as well. Uh, yet, um, now, for those who are uh, who have been repeated offenders, uh, and there's a serial nature, um, a step further than that that may be wise and warranted is uh, to say, "Hey, we will have a group of individuals." Uh, who basically come to your home and do house church with you. Uh, and we'll listen to the sermon. We will do uh, a worship set. Um, but if this is something that has been serial in nature and you say that you want to be uh, a part of our congregation, uh, then having a group of people who uh, are willing to uh, go and have church with that individual where there is um, beyond no access to minors, there's not exposure to minors um, yet. Uh, and so uh, those are steps that, um, that if a church is walking through uh, and somebody comes and they have uh, offended against minors, one of the steps, if a pastor is listening, is going, how do I know what is warranted? Um, well, you should ask that individual. All right, can hmm. can we talk to your parole officer? Uh, can we talk to uh, your court-appointed counselor that was uh, a part of uh, your required recovery process? And uh, to get a sense of history that goes beyond whatever it is that made the newspaper and assume we're going to read a newspaper and know what needs to be done. Um, yet uh, that... Just because um, somebody, and this is where we have, we have compassion and we have wisdom. Hmm. Somebody coming into a church uh, that is coming off of sex offender status, they're going to be lonely. Uh, because even going through the incarceration system, uh, the degree of being ostracized, um, even within imprisonment, those who have harmed minors, uh, tend to be ostracized even inside of incarceration. Uh, and so having a sense of community is something they're going to be uh, very thirsty for. Um, at a human level, we can appreciate that. Uh, that means they're going to come to us and they're going to uh, be remorseful because they want a place where they can be accepted uh, and belong. Uh, at the same time, um, they made lots of promises. They promised themselves they were never going to do this again. And they broke that promise to themselves. And uh, given the opportunity, uh, we have to err on the side of assuming they would break that promise to us when they say that's something that they would never do again. Uh, and so uh, we want to, we don't want to add the stigma, but we want to err on the side of making sure children are safe. And so getting that history from a sexual uh, addiction counselor, from a parole officer, Help us understand what is wise here. Um, and um, you may have to press as a ministry leader on that, uh, because in this kind of situation, uh, there are mm. everybody at every step in the process is human and they're worried about liability. 
and that parole officer may be saying, I don't want to say something because if I give you a, a sense that I think yeah. this is what ought to be done and it proves to be wrong, then that's going to come back on me. You may have to press and be the person who really says, I know you can't make a promise, but give me the information that I wouldn't know because this person uh, has just reached out to us and asked, or we thought this person was um, an upstanding member of our church until these things came to light, and now we don't know the truth. Uh, if we need to sign a re- ask them to sign a release of information for that to be done, uh, then we're willing to go through whatever process to get the information. If that church member who's asking to be a part of your church will not sign a release of information for you to be able to talk with a counselor or parole officer, that ought to be a red flag. Uh, if they are really transparent, uh, they will give you whatever information that you need to make a wise decision to make sure uh, this is not just safe, but peace of mind for everybody in the church. Uh, and so, again, having having more than just church pastors, elders, deacons involved in the decision-making process, but having social workers, parole officers, counselors involved in that advisement process is vital to caring for the abuser well. Okay, so how can church leaders develop relationships with local law enforcement and biblical counselors to best serve abuse victims? Yeah, I think I alluded to this earlier, but the the number one thing is start before the crisis. Uh, don't let a crisis be the, uh, the start of a relationship with law enforcement, with a trauma counselor, with um, social workers. That uh, right now, if you're a pastor leading uh, a church, uh, go to churchcares.com. Uh, look at the type of people that we invited to be on that team. Because uh, what we tried to do in that curriculum was invite the team of people uh, that a pastor would want to have a relationship with in their community. Um, and so when you look at the roles and descriptions that are on the side of those names uh, for the contributor list, uh, just jot down a list. And then whether it is uh, making a phone call and inviting a social worker to lunch, inviting uh, a law enforcement officer to come for a lunch and learn with your staff. It does um, begin to um, begin to make that list of people that over the course of the next several months, you're going to take one breakfast, one lunch that you're having with somebody to forge a relationship. Um, ask questions from a posture of humility. Um, it, um, because again, this is one where uh, to say that we as pastors and ministry leaders uh, have areas of ignorance, um, ignorance doesn't mean not intelligent. It just means we don't know. Um, and humility means we acknowledge what we don't know. So we sit down and say, hey, this is something it seems like churches have made a lot of mistakes with. Can you tell me the most common mistakes that you've seen? You don't have to mention any other church, but just tell me the type of mistake. Tell me what the number one thing, you know, the top three things are uh, that a church can do. It helped me understand how to be a good pastor shepherd uh, in this space, how we can partner together. Uh, like, what are the things that you so wish a church would do? 
Uh, and once you ask that question, uh, just take notes, listen, um, express gratitude. Don't, uh, at the end of that conversation, the number one action item is just that you've learned something, that you've shown yourself to be a person uh, who is a person of integrity that proactively uh, wants to handle this well. It, um, you know, at the close of the conversation to be able to say, hey, uh, if something came up in our church and I wasn't sure how to handle it, are you the person I would call or is that somebody else? Uh, and have them direct you on what that first call of confusion would be. Uh, and again, I, I've got to go off topic here for just a moment. When, when it comes to what is the standard for taking action, uh, that standard when it comes to the abuse or neglect of a minor is reasonable suspicion. Yet, and so as church leaders, uh, we don't make the first phone call when we know that a problem uh, has occurred. Uh, that our legal obligation uh, is to make that first phone call when there is reasonable suspicion uh, that a child is being abused, being neglected, or being exposed to abuse. Um, give a quick rundown on what happens on the backside of that phone call to CPS because sometimes we get really we get nervous about tipping the first domino when we don't know what dominoes are behind it. When you make that first phone call, there's going to be a caseworker at CPS uh, who uh, takes the call and they're going to take you through a standard interview. That means they're going to ask you dozens of questions that go through an assortment areas of abuse or neglect. That may mean 80% of the questions that they ask you have nothing to do with what you actually called about. That is them doing a holistic assessment. If your answer to 80% of that questions is, I don't know, you don't need to be insecure, you don't need to be self-conscious, you don't need to be annoyed, that is this person doing their job. All they are doing is getting the information that you have. All that you're doing is getting an expert second opinion. That person who takes a phone call is going to take the information that they write down uh, they're going to take it to their supervisor, uh, who is a more experienced caseworker than they are. The two of them are going to sit down together, and they're going to decide what, if any, action needs to be made. Uh, and so from a pastoral perspective, we're often really nervous that we're going to make a phone call and some reactionary decision is going to be made uh, without proper vetting. Uh, a holistic interview is going to be done. Two people are going to look at it. It, um, I can tell you from my pastoral experience that when CPS workers are not bored, they are some of the most overworked people on the planet, uh, the likelihood that they're going to take a case because they're looking for something to do is incredibly low. There is more times when I wish they would do more than they actually do than I think they did too much. But the standard for making that call is reasonable suspicion. And again, when you sit down with a law enforcement social worker, that kind of person, just asking like, I, I don't know if I've met that criteria. Um, hey, who do I call to help me think that through? Hmm. These folks are cited for ministry leaders who will give them that point of community engagement. Uh, if you show yourself to be a person of goodwill, they're going to be excited to talk to you. 
That's really helpful just to walk through that and uh, let us know what to expect. Uh, that's, yeah. Brad, this has been so helpful. Thank you so uh, for, for being on the podcast with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having this conversation. Uh, thank you to the listeners uh, who have who had the willingness to sit down and say, hey, I want to learn about this. This is going to make me uncomfortable, uh, but this is an area where I have to figure out uh, what needs to be done. Uh, that uh, this is an area as a church uh, that we we cannot remain uninformed, uh, that uh, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable and have the conversations that need to be had. Um, yet, uh, you know, when it comes to my role on the churchcares.com project, uh, my role was just being the pastor who would gather the group of people that these represent the folks that I need to listen to. And how do I set up the conversations that need to be had? Uh, I learned a great deal for that team of people that we were able to put together who have been doing this for decades. Uh, and so as a pastor, don't feel intimidated by your ignorance. Um, the ignorance is the entry point to conversations that allow us to be faithful shepherds uh, for people who have been hurting and alone and scared to death and talk. And it is so important uh, that we connect ourselves with people who can give us guidance on those subjects. Fantastic. So that's once again, churchcares.com. And if you're inside of the U.S., just text the word church cares. That's one word to the number 888-111 and you'll get more information about that. Well, thanks again for listening to the five leadership questions podcast and be sure to check out the est podcast as well they're part of our lifeway leadership podcast network family and with sam rayner micro freeze and josh king they've recently covered topics like ageism and church leadership leading a multi-generational church and uh, great topics more and more like that so just look at est on your favorite podcasting app and subscribe today we'll catch you next time